This episode is brought to you by BetterHelp, B-E-T-T-E-R. We work out our bodies. Let's work out our minds. Go to betterhelp.com forward slash Leo. Get that 10% off your first month. You're like, what is BetterHelp? Why would I go there? Because it's it's online therapy, baby. That's right. You don't have to sit in traffic. Uh, It's cheaper. It's international. So wherever you are in the world, your therapist can go with you. And you don't even have to sit in an office. The best thing is you can do this from your phone. Uh, You can text. You can call. Within 48 hours, they're going to match you up with your own therapist. Some people have their own chef, their own personal trainer. You get your own therapist. How cool is that? And here's the best part. If you don't like the therapist, you can just find yourself another one. You know, They will match you up with another therapist. Because I have friends who are looking for therapist right now and they're saying how hard it is to find one everybody everybody got a therapist now it seems like nowadays so get one and and if you're one of those people who are like well my life is good everything's good i don't need a therapist that's why now is the time to get one because when life hits the fan and and inevitably it does right uh that's not the time to look for a therapist because it takes time to build rapport to connect for them to know your backstory, for you to feel comfortable. So get a therapist now, somebody that you can talk to, build a relationship with, and then you can take a break. But then you have, you know, you got that therapist in your pocket when things do hit the fan, when life does punch you in the face. And then you got that, now it's not even a therapist you're calling, it's a friend, but it's a friend who's gonna, who's gonna like make you feel safe and secure and hold all your secrets and, and show you how to grow and get unstuck. It's, it's the best friend in the world, right there in your pocket, on your cell phone. Go to betterhelp.com forward slash Leo. Get that 10% off your first month now. Welcome to another episode of Before You Kill Yourself with your host, Leo Flowers. I am Leo Flowers. Today's guest is Sonia Wasden, who is a suicide survivor. She has managed the bipolar OCD and anxiety disorder for over 30 years. She has been interviewed on top media, including CBS This Morning and the Tamron Hall Show. Sonia's award-winning memoir, An Impossible Life, is a lighthouse of hope. Her mental health advocacy work includes doing mental health book clubs in women's prisons across the country. Even Oprah, par- even Oprah Winfrey participated in one. Welcome to the podcast, Sonia Wasden. Because I know so many people struggle with just even getting out of bed in the morning. Mm-hmm. So what got you out of bed this morning? Oh, I love that question. Okay. Well, my, actually my son and his wife have been visiting this weekend. So what got me out of bed this morning was they were leaving today and I wanted to say goodbye to them. So that got me out of bed today was to visit with my son and his wife. Uh, yeah. You look like a long hugger. Are you, are you a long yes. hugger? <laughs> yes. Yes. Would it like that? Uh, I'm excited to talk to you about your book, An Impossible Life. Mm-hmm. Uh, it tells your journey of, uh, you know, attempting suicide and then, you know, finding freedom and hope. And and can you talk to us about what led up to that moment of of your suicide attempt? Yeah. Well, um, I had been hiding my mental health challenges for over 20 years. Um, because of stigma, shame, feeling like it was me, I was weak. My dad had um, died from suicide four years earlier. 
And, um, you know, I had hit uh, rock bottom. I, th- I think that um, I hadn't fully radically accepted my mental illness. And I think I was fighting against it and not getting really the help that I needed. And I was just going um, through episodes of manic spending of $150,000 on credit cards in three months on worthless items, tipping the scales at 250 pounds, emotional eating, marriage hanging on by a thread. And, you know, psychiatric stays in the hospital, then going to church the next day and nobody knowing and just saying, oh, you know, how are you, Sonia? I'm wonderful. And, you know, I was married to the hospital CEO, attending charity events, pretending everything was perfect. And then it just all came falling down around me and the pain. I always tell people it's like the pain becomes so great that it silences all the love you have for your children. They have for you, for your friends. You feel like you're in a burning plane and you just have to jump. Yeah. You know, that's such a great way to describe it. I I remember, um, I forget what book I was reading, but they were describing the, the suicide, the suicidality, the pain that comes with it of like, you're in a burning building and like you want to jump, but but the plane is just so much more visceral because now you're in this moving thing and, you know, and, and jumping. And wh- where do you feel that in your body typically? Is it throughout the entire body you feel that pain and that burning? You know, I, you know, because I still have a lot of emotional pain today. I would say a lot of it for me is in my chest, you know, and it feels sometimes like so intense that it almost turned and it also turns physical, right? The became the pain becomes so great that the emotional being becomes physical. And there's a lot of people with physical illnesses that are in a lot of pain that it becomes emotional. You know, they get depressed and they also struggle with their mental health. So I think our bodies are so tied that I love that question you asked me just now, where, you know, in my body did I feel it or what did it feel like? Because I think a lot of people don't understand that the emotional does become physical just as physical can become emotional. Yeah. And, and it's powerful that you say that one of the things my girlfriend does, cause I feel pain in my chest. I feel it in my neck, in my head. Uh, but sometimes in my chest, I wonder if that's why I have asthma. And I was just diagnosed with it a year ago, oh. but my girlfriend will press her hands on my chest and mm-hmm. that pressure calms me down. And you know, that's just something I just discovered. Is there, have you, when you feel that pain in your chest, yeah. have, well, how, what's your coping strategy for that? Um, I would say I use, I, I went through a dialectical behavior therapy program that I was in for a year and, um, they taught us, um, distress tolerance, um, skills and, um, you know, you have soothing things that you do. Like, you know, I use heating pads, um, I will smell, you know, lavender. I'll do deep breathing. I'll go out on my porch and kind of get in nature and listen to music. And then if I'm getting really panicked, they DBT teaches where you stick your face in ice water. I know that sounds nuts, but it works. And, you know, sticking your face in ice water and then, you know, kind of, um, kind of shocks you a little. So yeah, talk to me about the sticking your face in ice water and and what, uh, how do they explain that? Um, 
You know, it's when you get a lot, I also, yeah, I have the bipolar obsessive compulsive and an anxiety disorder. And so when my anxiety is getting really high and I feel like I'm going to come out of my skin, you know, I oftentimes have had to go to the ER to get IVs of Ativan, or I feel like I'm having a heart attack. And so that's one of the ways that kind of helps. I mean, it kind of, um, I don't know the science behind it. Um, that was like five years ago. I know they explained it, but um, I can't remember the exact science. So look it up, Google it. Google has everything, but it's called tips. It's um, and you can look that up to tips for DBT. Um, it's T I P S and it will go through the steps, but there's steps that you put your face in um, ice water and bring it out and then do it again. And I think that it just the cold water, I think they've said something like on your head and your brain kind of, you know, shocks it a little bit and helps um, bring you out of that. Yeah, I could, I definitely see that. I take cold showers every morning and okay. it just is a way to make me, I feel present, grounded, uh, I guess the blood circulating. Mm -hmm. um, and it kind of gets me excited to start my day because just the thought of a cold shower first thing in the morning is just kind of like, oh, you know, like it shakes yeah. me a little bit. So mm -hmm. I, I could definitely see that. And so with dialectical behavioral therapy, um, are there things that you are then, is there a dialogue you're having with yourself when you are experiencing the, the pressure in your chest or the chest pain? Um, you know, it's funny that you say that a dialogue with yourself. I think that, um, I use mindfulness when I'm having that pain of sitting in the pain, welcoming the pain, holding it gently right? Leaning into the pain. Don't try to push it away because if you try to push it away, it comes stronger. And it's very scary to lean into it because then the pain gets a little more intense, but then it does come down. And so I have found that it takes great courage to kind of take that step forward into the pain and lean into it and just let it pass through you. So that dialogue, I try to calm my mind. I try to deep breathe and kind of mindfully allow, invite the feeling and the pain. You say you are welcome here and you kind of invite and let it kind of pass through you and um, kind of hold it gently and show yourself some grace and love. So it's more of a mindful love holding grace. And yes, it's painful. But I've learned that getting comfortable being uncomfortable is also a skill that's very helpful for people who struggle with mental health challenges. That really resonates uh, in so many of the bios that I've read. Winston Churchill struggled with depression, and he called his depression the black dog. Yeah. And so he was like, hey, black dog, I see, I see you came back. You know, let's yeah. hang out. And so he made friends with it. And, uh, and it sounds like that's exactly uh, what you're talking about. Allow it, invite it in, don't reject it uh, and don't suppress it because it just allows it to grow. Yeah. And I think people and studies have found the more you push it and resist against it, it pushes back, right? It pushes back or you shove it down and then it comes exploding out. So actually, you know, maybe initially when you lean into it, the pain might rise a little bit, but then it will soften where if you push it down, it comes harder and it actually is more painful. You, you talked about gaining weight, like you were at about 250 pounds. Yeah. Um, you know, you're, you're sleeping more. I'm, I'm assuming 
um, just uh, you're spending a lot of money at the store, yeah. right? What, you know, I, I think so many people may notice those types of behaviors in a loved one or a friend. What would you wish someone had said or done at that when you were going through those experiences? You know, I think um, sometimes people think, oh, you know, like, and I wasn't showering or changing my clothes. And, you know, a lot of people could say, oh, come on, you know, just get out of bed, shower, pull it together. And when you're in those deep depressive, it's, I mean, like showering feels like you're climbing Mount Everest. I remember if I showered, I'd just be like, oh my gosh, I have just accomplished the biggest thing ever. Where's my trophy? Where's my awards? Where's my gold medal? It feels that hard. And so I would say, show them some compassion and grace. And maybe instead of saying to them, get some help, maybe go to them and say, Hey, would you like me to make a phone call to the doctor? Would you like me to do some research to help you find a therapist? Let me sit down and make that appointment for you. Let me, let me help you help yourself. Would, would you allow me to do that and ask permission. Don't just force it on them. Say, say, would that be helpful? You know, can I drive you to the doctor's appointment? Can I drive you to urgent care, psych urgent care? You know, can I go pick up your meds for you? Like maybe they just don't have that activation energy that they're so down that instead of just telling them, go get help, you need to get help. Maybe do some research and offer to help them get help. Like being very specific and practical, yeah, right. Versus because, like you said, when we're in that in the the depth of depression, we're not thinking. If we were thinking, then we, we wouldn't be in the the depressive state, right? We're like more in our like mammalian reptilian part of our brain, um, and so to kind of help us think through what our options are, because our our options feel very limited when we're in that well of depression. You know, I love that you say that because, you know, a lot of people, I hope they would look at people who are struggling and saying, okay, I'm not going to judge them. I'm going to offer them compassion. And maybe even just saying, Hey, I'm noticing you seem to be struggle. I care. I'm here for you. You know, just letting them words of love and, and I would say, but don't try to be their therapist, right? It's better to call the doctor, get them to a therapist. Don't try to be their therapist and don't, you know, because they say, oh, I'll enable them if I help them. No, you can help them get help, but you enable them when you try to be their therapist. So there's a difference in trying to be their therapist. I call that enabling, but I don't call enabling, you know, driving them to their doctor's appointment or offering some love and support. Um, which they definitely need to get well. That's a beautiful distinction. I appreciate you bringing that up. And, you know, and I had a friend, I remember I was going through a massive depressive uh, period where not showering, wearing the same things over and over. My clothes were wrinkled. And a friend said, you know, Leo, you, you're not dressing the way you used to. <laughs> and it, it bothered me and it upset me. I was like, how dare you? But yeah. I realized they, at least they had noticed that there right. was a difference. and. And when I start to find myself going through those cycles again, and it's actually helped me to notice when I'm going through it, where like, oh, wait, I, I wore this three days in a row. I must be in that place again. Right. Uh, and so then I can course, I can catch it earlier and course correct. Yeah. You talked about your father 
uh, also ending his life in suicide. Were you able to, how old were you when that happened? And were you able to process that, like get help for that? Or was that something that your family swept under the rug and was like, all right, we're going to act like that didn't happen? Oh, you ask such good questions. <laughs> um, well, it happened um, like a decade ago. So I was married and I had children. Um, but what was difficult to get through it, and I'll be vulnerable here. Um, I, I share it in my book anyway, so I'll share it here. Um, my father, I had to hospitalize him against as well. And so as he was going down the ER with two security guards on each side of him, um, he turned around and said, Sonia, I hate you. I will never forgive you for this. And I screamed down that hospital hallway, dad, I love you. And I was waiting for him to turn around and say, I love you more. Cause that's what he always said to his children. When we said, I love you. That was the last time, um, I don't want to get emotional, but, um, I ever saw him. So, um, yeah, I had to get some therapy, um, to work through my grieving process um, in a little different way. Um, cause I didn't have a positive last experience with him or closure. Um, but I did find a letter. He used to write us letters, um, in one of my drawers, um, that he expressed his love to me. And so that letter I have that I'll read over and over, um, that he had written me. Is there, you know, my father passed away and uh, I saw maybe like twice a year in my childhood. And so every year on his birthday or Father's Day, I'll write him a letter to kind of process my feelings, uh, even though it was, I don't know, maybe 10 years ago. Uh, it's, it feels like it was yesterday. Is there a thing that you do like annually or periodically to kind of process the emotions besides reading the letter? You know, I love that you do that. I might have to take that suggestion up. Uh, I learn things along my journey too from other people. So I, that's a beautiful thing that you do. I, I'll, I I'll warn you and say that it, it at least for myself, the it, the letter's written in three parts, just naturally. Mm -hmm. First there's anger or rage, and then it becomes hurt and um, sadness. And then the last part of the letter is like peace and tranquility and serenity um but that's so i'm still working my, i'm st it reopens the grieving process all over again every time i do it and I'm, I'm i'm waiting for that day to where i sit down and write the letter and it's just like all peace and tranquility i don't know if i'll ever get there but uh, well wow i love that and and i love your honesty about that you're not just saying that you're writing your father and it's all loving i love your honesty of saying no i'm not there yet that it's anger and you know it's a process a grieving process that you continue to go through so um i love that suggestion i'm going to take it up and then i'll email you and let you know how that goes for me please do um so i love that yeah and in terms of like, you know, there's so many books like Body Keeps the Score and so many books that talk about trauma that talk about getting into the physical. And I know you talked about breath work. Are there any type of like exercises or like some people get into yoga or Tai Chi or any type of movement or dancing? So yeah. sometimes like, you know, Afro beats. Have you incorporated that into helping yourself navigate your way through the pain? Yeah. 
Oh, absolutely. I, um, every morning I turn on, don't stop believing and I dance. So if anybody, like nobody's in here, but myself, my husband's still sleeping. I get up really early and I turn the song on in my little ear pods. And I just dance as I make my breakfast and I'm dancing away and it lifts my mood. So when I, you know, if I wake up in pain or I wake up, like you said, having struggle getting out of bed, I wake up and I know I'm going to play that song. And it's like, you kind of program yourself for positivity that that song plays. And I instantly feel a little happier and I just dance. Um, I have a dance party all by myself. So I highly suggest people have a dance party by themselves. It is a mood lifter. Um, I also, um, wake up very early, like I said, and I watch the sun, um, come up, um, and I say prayers of gratitude, and um, I also walk out in nature. Um, walking in nature has been very healing for me. Um, and it's where I can kind of ground myself. So those are some things that I have found that bring some joy and um, tempers that pain. You were 250 pounds, thereabouts. Uh, you, you don't look anywhere close to 250 pounds. No, I've lost pounds 100 now. pounds. <laughs> so, you know, so much talk is about um, nutrition and diet, but we all know that it, it's, it's partly mental and, and also lifestyle. What were the, the changes that you made that got you back to, you know, being in the shape that you are today? Well, I will say I had gastric bypass surgery, so that has helped me. I was a big emotional eater, but there's many people who eat through their gastric and I have not. Um, what I would say health wise is I think extreme diets are just not good. Um, I think, you know, sometimes it's just about, okay, I'm going to eat some vegetables cause that's good for my body. Instead of saying, okay, I'm going to start tomorrow. I'm going to eat healthy tomorrow. So I better hurry and eat all the candy and sugar today because tomorrow's the day. I think it's, you know, doing living in the now right here in this present moment of, okay, I'm going to eat something that my body is going to make my body feel good. And so I think when we focus on this food is going to make me feel good, this healthy food, I'm feeding my body, I'm nourishing my body, I'm I, I'm being um, taking care of my body, I'm thanking my body, right, by giving it good nutrition. And I think a lot of times also people think, oh, I'm going to become, I'm going to go run a marathon. And I always say to them, hey, just go outside and walk. Like, you know, you don't have to run this marathon. I think that's amazing that people do it. And if you want to great set up the goal, but a lot of people set up a goal, a big goal like that, and then they never do it, but they, you know, realizing just open your door, go on a walk in your neighborhood and doing that is healthy. It's good for your body. It's good for your mental. It's good for everything. And so I think sometimes just doing simple things and not getting so caught up in this, tight, tight goal of just saying, okay, I'm just going to open my door and go for a walk. Okay. I'm just going to, you know, eat a handful of carrots, like just do small things, start small. That's how I have been able to maintain, um, my health is I just go for a walk. You know, I eat some carrots. Yes. I eat chocolate, but more like I'll have a piece instead of eating the whole cake. Like I used to. So I think just small things and moderate have worked for me, you know? Yeah. I'm in a 12 step program and they say moderation is the, the antidote to character defects. 
Ooh. And and I, I have to remind myself because, you know, I have a very addictive personality uh, where I don't want one. I want all of it, no yeah. matter what it is. And, yeah. and I have to remind myself that that can tip the scale for yeah. myself in one way, direction or the other. You talked about feeling the, 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 the pain of despair in your chest. Um, where does the, the mania show up? Because we're talking about bipolar also. Where do you feel that in your body? Where do you register that? Um, I would say kind of throughout my whole body. I mean, I feel like that mania, you know, my medicine, obviously I'm on manages it. And that's why I'm able to do the life that I'm doing now. But what I would say is it's just throughout your whole body, this energy, like if somebody would come up to me and say, Hey, you're going to win the lottery. I would say, of course, of course I am today. Of course makes total sense. You know, you just think you're invincible. You think everything's going your way. And, um, it's, it's a rush. I mean, it's, it feels wonderful. So it's like, you have these high highs that feel amazing, but then the crashes are super low. So they're not worth it, but yeah, it's quite a ride. You think, you think you are on top of the world and anything good that's happening to you, you would just go, of course, God's favorite child, me, you know, it just feels that way. Uh, so I would imagine that um, during in in the past you may have taken caffeine to like kind of keep that going because it feels so amazing. Are are you still able to drink caffeine or is that too stimulating for you? Is that something you've had to cut back up on? Um. So what I would say is is that um, I can have some caffeine, but not too much. And also, a caffeine can make you have anxiety. So I think again, it's a balance. I do have caffeine. But you're right. The doctors do not want me to go, you know, too far with it. So like you said, right, I also have an addictive personality that wants to go one way or the other. So I'm like you. I like the quote that you said, but moderation is something that I have to kind of work on, too. With your dad having uh, being bipolar also, what was the upside to that that you saw as a child? Um full of energy and love. And even my bipolar disorder, you know, a lot of people just think, oh, worst thing ever. There are some good things of it. You know, it does give me more energy. It does give me more creativity. It does give me more endurance. Like I am able to um, push through a lot of failure and a lot because I'm used to carrying a lot of pain. I can kind of go farther than like my husband, a lot of my family members in achieving a goal or a dream. I can kind of push through to that next level because I have learned and I've gotten strengthened from the pain the bipolar gives me. I can push through rejection and difficulty to get my way um, a little more fierce. Mm hmm. And so when you feel that, because I see your eyes lighting up right yeah, now, you're like, I get oh, determined. Yeah. <laughs> oh, yeah, I get determined when I get determined. Watch out. Here I come. And so it's so easy to fall in love with that feeling, right? Because yeah. you're getting things done. And then also society rewards that they're patting Correct. you on the back. Like Correct. we love people who push through, persevere mm -hmm. and and accomplish things. And so mm -hmm. I would imagine you then would also have to recenter yourself so that yeah it doesn't spiral out. And so what does that look like for you? And I'm asking this because like I do stand up comedy and yeah. at night I get so wired and I enjoy it. 
but I realize I have to go for a walk afterwards or okay. else the wheels keep spinning. Right. Like I have to walk off the, the remaining energy. Is there, after the, the goal has been accomplished, like writing this book had to be such a, a whirlwind. Um, how did you, how, I guess, how did you celebrate? I guess is my first question. And then how did you reset so that you, it didn't, you didn't feel like I had to write another one and another one and yeah. that kind of thing. Um, so, well, I don't know. So, um, my books are a series, so I am writing another one, another one. So maybe, I don't know, maybe you just diagnosed it. Why are we writing a series? Uh, maybe because I need to write the other one, but you know, it's interesting when I wrote my book an impossible life, um, and I shared just the raw unedited truth of what it's like to live with a mental illness, have suicidal feelings, a suicide attempt, um, all those things. You know, when I first published it, actually, I was terrified because I made myself so vulnerable, right? I put out um, to the whole world, my life, my pain. I mean, we told it all. And so um, and my first reaction was kind of like, oh, do you know what I mean? I was scared for the judgment to come. Um, but then, you know, I got a lot of peace because why I did it was to help people to break stigma, to let people know they're not alone for people who have family members that are struggling for them to better understand them. And so as I started getting the emails back, it, you know, just, I couldn't put your book down or a psychiatric nurse. I'll never look at my patients the same way again, or wow. You know, I understand my sister so much better or wow. I feel so not alone. You know, thank you. You've given me hope. So that made me feel really good. And then when our book won the Eric Hoffer 2022 grand prize winner, yeah, I was thrilled, you know? And so you have to get excited and celebrate those wins, but you know, you can't get caught up in, oh, I just keep needing more book awards or I need to keep being a bestseller or these things. You need to come back and kind of ground yourself with saying, yes, these are great goals. But really at the end of the day, what matters most is having a, a life worth living, living your best life, having good relationships. So yes, I have lots of fire and determination to try to achieve things. But the most important thing are my relationships. I love that. When you look back on taking the pills, uh, you know, I read Anna Karenina. And, you know, there's a scene where if you haven't read it yet, that's your fault because it's an old. Book. I've read it. But right. And so there's, you know, where she's under the train and then realizes what a mistake she's making. Um, what did you really want? What oh, did you wow. or what did you need? What did you, does that make, does that question make sense? Yeah. You know, it's interesting because, um, I've had suicidal ideation almost my entire life. And I got to a point where I kind of disillusioned myself where I thought everyone wanted to die. When I went to the psychiatric hospital, the first time I was committed against my will. And when the crisis worker was talking to me, she's like, how many times do you think about suicide a day? And I was like, oh, just the average amount like you, you know, just the average amount, you know, however much you do. And, um, I kind of just believed everyone was an enormous amount of pain and wanted to die that that was just everyone's wish. So, um, after I realized it wasn't, I my suicide ideation continued. 
And it's interesting because like I said, I think it was just this pain that, you know, just got so big, bigger than I could take. Cause I really didn't want to die because when I woke up in the ICU and the doctors luckily were able to save my life, um, a psychiatrist made a really good point to me. And she said to me, Sonia, you have had suicide ideation for over 25 years. You have been wanting to take your life. She goes, you've been in a battle of a lifetime. And she goes, um, she goes, why haven't you done it? Why haven't you attempted until now? And I realized, you know, I'd been telling everyone I want to die. I want to die. I want to die. And in that moment, I really realized I wanted to live. I just wanted a way out of the pain, but I had been battling my suicide ideation for 25 years to stay alive that I truly deep down, even though I told all my loved ones, everyone around me for 25 years, I just want to die. I just want to die. I truly wanted to live. You wanted a way out of the pain. I wanted a way out of the pain. That's powerful. Uh, and I want to let that rest for the listeners out there. Um, Wow, I've never been stumped before because I really felt that. I really felt that. And and so what was the first step for you out the pain? Um, I think getting into real treatment. treatment. Mm-hmm. I think that medicine's not enough. I also think people have to have an honest um, realization also with medication that, you know, a lot of times we just go on the medication the doctors give us instead of taking some of our power back and saying, okay, you know what? I'm going to have a journal. I'm going to take this medicine. I'm going to write down the side effects, write down the positive, try another one and decide for myself, what side effects am I willing to live with and what medicines are working? Because there's some medications where it's just like, no, you can't tell me to take this. This is not worth it to me. And so I think you've got to have patience and boy, you've got to have fortitude to get through the medication until you find the right one. It is hard, but I still say to people, take some of your power back and do a journal and you decide what medicine you can live with, but you have to understand their side effects. So you can't just say, Oh, none of them. Cause if you have an illness that you need medicine, there's going to be side effects most likely. So you just better start getting deep down and realizing digging down that you've got to take medicine. There's going to be side effects. Okay. What ones are you going to pick? Um, and then I would say therapy it's, you can't just do medicine alone. You've got to get skills to manage, you know, these mental health challenges. And so I think for me, it was a combination of taking some of my power back with the medicine and deciding, okay, I'll live with these side effects. I'm not willing to take that medicine and live with those side effects. And finding a medicine that controls and helps me manage my bipolar and then living with the side effects and learning that. And then also doing the dialectical behavior therapy year long program that really gave me skills. And I still see a therapist. I have a team of medical doctors, right? My psychiatrist, my internal medicine, my therapist, um, And I actually see two psychiatrists because I want to get second opinions. So yeah, there's a lot of ways to do it. And if your therapist is no longer working for you, maybe it's time to switch. You know, I I just think it's important to take control of your own mental health and your medical 
right? You take control. Don't give it all over to the doctors. They can advise you, but they're not living your life. And I love that you said a team because that's what it's really about, right? I have an acupuncturist, a masseuse, a psychologist, yeah. a, a couples therapist. Mm -hmm. did, did you go into couples therapy at some point? Oh, we have. Yeah. My marriage was horrible for 20 years. I mean, we almost got a divorce so many times, but my husband and I have been married 30 years and we actually have a very happy, fulfilling relationship. Now I was able, right. When you've got mental health challenges in a relationship, it makes it more difficult. It's not just you and your partner. It's you, your partner and the mental health challenges. So it's a little bit of an interesting dynamic. So what I would say is, is that, um, we had to learn to navigate all that and have boundaries and um, to learn how to live together. And we have a wonderful marriage now. We're so happy we stayed together. Um, we just enjoy being with each other. So, yeah, it's possible. So I, I'm glad you brought up boundaries because we know that um, when we don't set boundaries in a relationship, that can lead to resentment. Right. Or you feel like you're giving so much to the other person or you're not getting enough that that reciprocity um and then that can spiral us out into a depressive or manic um episode what, what does it sound like to either set a boundary with your significant other or to um inform them when something is bothering you right so i think a couple things here what you've you brought up some really good points is that I think the people who are struggling with mental health challenges, even when you're in the pain, you've got to step outside a little bit of it and look to your partner and say, wow, this must really be hard for you. You know, you're helping me. You're having to see my emotions. Listen to me. You must get exhausted. And then to look at them and say, I see you. I hear you. This must be hard for you. Thank you for supporting me. Right. Or saying to them, hey, you know, do you need a break? Should I call another family member over or a friend? Do you need to just check out, take care of your mental health? So showing them some compassion. So I think it's important that even if you're totally in pain, to try to dig somewhere deep and offer some compassion to your partner or your family. Um, and then I think when you're struggling, if you can't have a conversation they want to have, it's just to say, okay, I need a moment. Can we get back to that later? I'm not in a place I can talk right now. To understand where you're at and to let them to set that boundary with them of saying, you know, I, I can't take that on right now. Or even letting them know that's yours. That's not mine. Right? That's beautiful. That's yours. That's not mine. Sonia, is there anything that, you know, I know you wrote this book with your daughter. Were there things that you discovered about her or about each other in the process of writing this book that made it just so like rewarding and nourishing for you? Oh, absolutely. It was a healing experience. She was very angry after I attempted suicide, very angry at me. And when she was 16, like I said, I had suicide ideation for over 20 years so she found one of my suicide notes when she was 16. And then when she was 21, I attempted and she was very angry and just felt like it was very selfish. You know, 
I, how, and then I lost my dad to suicide. So I knew firsthand what, how, what type of damage suicide does to a family. And she's like, you know, firsthand and you would do that to me. So she was very angry. And as we, um, wrote this book together, um, she found some compassion and understanding for me. And I was able to find some compassion and understanding for her. And so we were able to come together almost in a shared experience and to offer each other understanding, some compassion, some grace and love for our unique, different experiences. So it was very beautiful. So many people, um, when they do attempt suicide or are thinking about it, they often think that it's going to help other people. It's going to be a benefit to other people. Oh. So how are you just, you know, and not to... Uh, frame it in a negative, but what was your thinking? Let me say it like that. What was your thinking when you uh, took the pills and that, like, how would it benefit your daughter or the family or, or was it, was that the thinking of like, they're going to be better off without me? Oh, absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Because when you have mental health challenges, oftentimes you feel like a burden. You just feel like I'm, I'm a downer, <laughs> right? I'm killing the party. <laughs> you know. I'm, I'm a, I'm a, I'm a mood killer. And so, um, yeah, I, I think, yeah, those thoughts of, they will be better off without me. And if I'm, and if we're being real, the, I still sometimes have those thoughts of they would be better off without me, even though I now have, you know, my illness hasn't changed anything from 30 years ago to today, all that's changed is my strength, my skills, my capacity to handle it. So I'm living a very successful life now. I'm not in bed. I'm out doing things, you know, mental health advocacy companies are paying me to speak. I'm publishing articles. I've written a book. I'm very active now and I've learned how to manage it and live with it. But even then, I still have moments of, wow, you know, my mental illness, it's not only me who is managing and dealing with it, but I've got my support team of not just my medical team who goes home. I've got my family and friends that are with me constantly. So yeah, I have moments where I do still think like, oh, I'm such a burden. They'd be better off without me. And it's not the correct thought or the right one, but if we're honest, yeah, I sometimes still have them. And how does DBT help you reframe that or address that? Um, I think that um, I let them know that I had that thought, but even they're called, my therapist calls them sticky thoughts, right? And so just like with painful emotions, you don't push them away. I, you call it out and I say, oh, I'm having a sticky thought. Okay. Sticky thought. You're welcome to be here. You don't engage in a conversation with it because you'll, they'll never stop talking to you. So then you just acknowledge, oh, I'm having a sticky thought. You're welcome to be here. And then I do mindfulness and I go right back to what I was doing before because you can't have two thoughts at the same time. So I focus in on that email I'm writing or I focus in on something else. And when it comes back, I just keep redoing it and it lessens the sticky thought of, you know, coming at me. But I also do let my family know or my husband know that, wow, you know, I had that thought and that feeling today, you'd be better off without me. That was really hard. And he could just hug me and say, oh, you know, we wouldn't be because your family wouldn't be. And um, but it's OK to express it, acknowledge. I, I yeah, I think that helps. 
You know, and, and that's helpful for a number of reasons, because we have a, a number of thoughts going through our head at different times. My girlfriend and I are going through a move right now, and uh, the stress levels are, are, are a little higher than usual. And so you have these thoughts. And I find that when you share the sticky thoughts, it dissipates. And so I think a lot of times we have these repetitive thoughts, especially when we're struggling with OCD, that we think we need to act on those thoughts. But we don't realize that we're having it repetitive thoughts because we haven't shared it and we haven't found a way to dissipate it. Yeah. It's not telling us that we need to act on it. So I right. appreciate you sharing that. Sonia, is there anything from your story that you think would be of value? I know it's a lot, so much is in a book, but is there anything that, that you didn't include in the book that you thought was like, I really should have put that in there or uh, I just yeah. couldn't find a way? Yeah, actually there is one scene, but I talk about it in my interviews. I have everywhere. Um, after I got out of the hospital, um, after my suicide attempt, obviously my secret was out now, right? Um, my neighbors couldn't miss the ambulance, my body being taken out unconscious on a stretcher. My husband was a CEO of the hospital I was taken to. Um, and when I went home, I saw, I was looking out the window and I saw my neighbors all laughing in the cul-de-sac and I thought, okay, take a deep breath. Okay. Just go talk to them. And as I approached them, the conversation instantly died, awkward silence, um, awkward conversation. And I just, you know, wrapped my bruised heart in my coat and went home and only one person stopped by to see if I was okay. Whereas opposed to my sister who had cancer, you know, people were mowing her lawn, bringing her meals, asking her husband at work, is she okay talking to her about it? And I think a lot of people, I don't think my neighbor's were bad people are trying to hurt me. It's just a lot of people don't know how to talk about suicide. And so the thing that I'd like to share about that story is if you know someone who has lost a loved one to suicide or who has attempted to sue from uh, attempted suicide and survived, even if you don't know what to say, be authentic and honest and look that person in the eyes and say, I don't know what to say, but I care for you. Or I don't know what to say, but I'm glad you're still with us. Or if it's a loved one that they had lost, I don't know what to say. You know, I don't have words to express, you know, but I'm here for you and we love you. So it's better to acknowledge it is what I'm saying than not than to ignore it. And if you don't know what to say, that's okay. Just say that. <laughs> that is so powerful. Thank you so much, Sonia Wasden. And the last question that I have of all my guests, because right. I always imagine there's one person listening in who yeah. may be on the precipice of wanting to end their life. Before yeah. you kill yourself, what would you say to them? You won't always feel this way. It will pass. You have a life worth living. There's a purpose for you. And that even though you feel this way, yes, it is hard. I have been there. But the feeling will pass. Have the courage to step away from that cliff and it takes courage and be so brave. And it's your illness telling you to take your life, to have those feelings, fight for your life. Thank you so much, Sonia. Thank you so much to listeners for tuning in. Remember this podcast is not a substitute for you going to get help. Call the 988 number, which is a new 1-800 number or any of the international phone numbers in the show notes. You can go to thrivewithleo.com for one-on-one -on -one coaching with yours truly. You can get Sonia's book. There will be a link in the show notes for An Impossible Life. 
Uh, let's get to tomorrow together. Thank you so much, Sonia. Thank you for having me.